Hello and welcome to another instalment of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. This episode we're playing Dead of Night, book 40 in the Fighting Fantasy series. It was written by Jim Bambra and Stephen Hand, with internal art by Martin McKenna and cover art by Terry Oakes. Only one bit of business to get out of the way before we crack on. Patron John Kirk has increased his support, thus earning himself my undying thanks and a special episode of my other podcast, Popular Antiquarian. You may remember John from the bonus episode we did of his game book Interstellar Terror, which is now available in PDF form from Drive Through RPG, which makes the book even more accessible. If you want to be like John, all you have to do is go to www.patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Now, I know nothing about Dead of Night, so that's very exciting. The cover art is quite cool, showing a giant demon emerging from a fiery pit in the forest and looking for all the world like it's auditioning for a heavy metal album cover. Very much like it. We've not encountered Jim Bambra or Stephen Hand before. Stephen Hand would go on to pen a couple more fighting fantasy books, while this was the lone outing for Jim Bambra in the series. Artist Martin McKenna is a great name to see in the credits. I very much liked his work on Volta the Vampire, and hopefully he can build on that success here. Okay, let's take a look at the rules. Skill, stamina and luck are all present and correct, but we've got another stat because of course we have. The new stat here is Evil, which starts at zero and increases through the adventure, if you do evil stuff. You want to keep it as low as possible. This ties in with the background, which has your character as a warrior priest, dedicated to opposing evil. But the book does indicate that there are some creatures that can only be defeated with the tools of evil, so it's not simply a case of just being as nice as possible all the time. In addition, you get to choose three talents from a list of seven. These are all nicely evocative priest powers, I've selected Banish Undead, which allows you to banish certain undead monsters because it's a classic cleric power from Dungeons & Dragons, so I kind of had to pick it. I've also taken Holy Circle, which offers some protection while inside a mystic circle, and Sense Demon. These all felt like really evocative options, and the other ones are pretty cool as well. Might talk about them at the end. In terms of gear, we get robes instead of leather armour, a sword, backpack, ten gold pieces, a silver cross, and three vials of holy water. We also get five provisions, which is down from the traditional ten, but which feels probably about right, I would say, depending on how hardcore the adventure actually is, of course. I've rolled up a character who I've decided to call Unction o Vespers because I think that sounds very priestly. They have a skill of 12, a stamina of 22, and a luck of 12, making them extremely hench. Without any further ado, let's dive into Dead of Night. It is late at night, and you lie in your room, unable to sleep. You are idly watching the shadows thrown onto the wall by a flickering candle, when suddenly they take on an ominous appearance. The silhouette of a squat, toad-like creature forms, and two humanoid shapes writhe in torment at its feet. A cold flush sweeps over you as you recognise the people. They are your parents. 
and the vile shape above them can only be Muir, your arch foe and one of the three demon lords. Ever since that fateful day when your brother was slain, you have sought out and killed demons wherever they may be found. You will never forget that terrible scene. The two of you were working in the fields near your home when a fanged demon swept down from the sky and ripped your brother to shreds. Hearing your screams, Branner, the village priest, came running to your aid. He was able to destroy the demon before it could turn on you. At that moment, you realised you had been spared in order to wage war against demon kind. There and then, you vowed to become a demon hunter. Later, at your brother's funeral, a strange ghost appeared and spoke briefly to Branner before disappearing. It was soon after this event that Branner, seeing in you a hardy spirit, arranged for you to study at the sacred citadel of the Templars at Royal Lendl. That is a lot of events in a really short number of words. I approve. It's um, nicely written, but it is getting through the backstory at speed, which I always appreciate. That seems like a long time ago now. Since then, you have slain many of the demons inhabiting the mountains of the Witchtooth Line. The Witchtooth Line sounds like a particularly cursed underground line. The one they don't talk about. Indeed, on more than one occasion you have even thwarted the plans of Muir. But you have always feared that the demon lord, unable to strike directly against you, might one day attack you through your parents. Now your worst fears may be coming true. The shadows on the wall twist and grow larger. Crowford, your home village, comes into view swathed in a thick mist. An apparition of Muir and your parents hangs over the village. The demon grins maliciously as your parents silently plead for help. A cold gust of wind throws open the shutters of your window and extinguishes the candle, plunging the room into darkness. Shakily, you relight the candle and prepare to head for your home at daybreak. Taking leave of the head of your order, you ride north through Galantaria. After a few days, you cross the Whitewater River and enter your homeland. During the journey, you try to convince yourself that the shadows on the wall were only projections of a rambling and tired mind. But no matter how hard you try, you cannot shake the fear that grips your heart. You must put your mind at rest by finding out whether your parents are safe. And if they are not, then Muir will feel your righteous wrath. You prepare yourself for the worst by recollecting all you know concerning your arch-enemy and his demonic ways. This evil, corrupt, depraved and chaotic being is renowned for his subtle and devious schemes. In his earthly form, Muir can appear as a huge grotesque toad, or as an innocent young boy. More than once you have thwarted his agents as they attempted to pervert people to your will. Your most dangerous challenge was when you confronted Muir himself. He had possessed the body of the king's adviser and was fermenting unrest and rebellion throughout the kingdom of Galantaria by implementing repressive measures against the peasantry. Fortunately, you were able to see through his disguise and you forced him to abandon his evil schemes. You can be of no doubt that Muir hates you deeply. If he has harmed your parents, you will need all the aid you can find. 
Branner, the old priest, is dead, but the new spiritual leader in Crowford should be able to offer you assistance. You also know Charlena, a seer who lives nearby. She has the power to summon and speak to spirits, and has helped you many times in the past. If there are demons involved, her aid will be invaluable. You are almost home. Soon you'll know for sure whether or not it was only shadows you saw on the wall, or a glimpse of reality. So there's the background. Um, I think that's pretty good. It's given us lots of useful information, like demons can change their shape and appear as innocents. That is likely to be important. And it's also pointed us in the direction of two people that we want to talk to as a matter of some urgency. So while it's doing the classic fighting fantasy thing of presenting us with the stakes early doors, it's not just providing us with a list of made-up places and made-up bad guys. Yeah, pretty good, I would say. You can see the village of Crowford nestling in the vale before you. Writhing tendrils of mist coil along the streets and wind eerily round the houses. Suppressing a shiver, you pull your cloak close around you and urge God's fire onwards. To add to your uneasiness, you can make out a grim figure swinging from a wooden scaffold that stands a few yards down the road ahead of you. It is the ragged skeleton of a criminal left to rot inside gibbet irons. A lesson to all would-be highwaymen. There is a picture of the road ahead with Crowford in the distance beneath rearing hills with the foreground dominated by a very nice picture of a rotting carcass inside the gibbet. Like it very much. As a child you used to take a shortcut away from the winding road through the fields on your left. Indeed at this time of day you might even find your parents working there. On the other hand, in this thick mist, they could well be in the village tavern. Will you take the shortcut through the fields in the hope of meeting your parents, or follow the road which means you will have to ride under the hanging skeleton? I want to do both, which is always a good sign. I want to do the sensible sounding thing, but I also want to find out what happens if you ride beneath the skeleton. Could it be possessed? I'm going to ride underneath the skeleton because it is the thing that I'm most curious about. Drawing near the gibbet irons, you see that they are old and on the point of collapse. The rope linking the cage to the wooden scaffold is frayed and rotten. The cage itself is more rust than metal, and the splintered scaffold is plagued with mould. Worse still, the festering skeleton held by the iron bars is laughing. Its bony body judders and thrashes within the restricting confines of the cage, and its skull rocks with malevolent glee. Somehow it knows your name, and in a gruff voice it mocks you. You're too late, fool. Your pathetic powers cannot aid you now. Will you strike at the skeleton hanging up in the cage with your sword, or ignore it and race onwards? I'm going to give it a stab, because again, I just want to find out what happens if I give it a stab. You lash out the skeleton with your sword, but you only manage to rock the cage, causing the weak rope holding it to snap. Before you know it, you are on the ground with the reeking cage lying on top of you. Deduct two points from your stamina. Stamina now 20. 
The skeleton laughs all the more at your misfortune, its mad grin mere inches from your face, and the laughing only grows louder when you scramble out from under the horrid thing and hack away at the clattering bones through the bars. You realise then that this has all been a waste of valuable time. You remount your horse and consider the implications of this encounter. Does more evil lie in wait on the road ahead, or is this just a sign that evil haunts the entire area? Do you want to carry on along the road, or double back and take the shortcut over the fields? So I think we'll take the opportunity here to double back over the fields. I think it's always testament to the quality of writing when I make stupid decisions, knowing full well they're stupid decisions because the writing has made the encounter sufficiently evocative that I'm more curious to find out what horrible thing will happen than I am intent on making sensible decisions that will get me through the adventure. Taking a tight grip on the reins, you swing off the road and make your way across the fields. As you draw closer to the village, the snaking and curling mist gets thicker and thicker. A gust of wind briefly scatters the vapours to reveal a withered landscape. The crops lie rotting, and the ground is littered with the dead and twisted bodies of field mice and birds. As the fog closes in again, you cast worriedly about, searching for your parents. But it's obvious that nothing is left alive in this blasted land. You ride on and shortly come across an old acquaintance, the village scarecrow that you and your friends used to call Black Jack. Test your luck. Well, my luck is 12, so I am automatically lucky. Luck now 11. Unbelievably, Black Jack comes to life. It leaps up at you with an evil hiss, dark fire gleaming behind its slitted eye sockets. Though you are knocked off your horse by the impact, you manage to dodge the sharp needle-like fangs that come snapping at your arm. However, no sooner are you on your feet with sword drawn than the thing falls lifeless. You prod it with your blade, but it is just a scarecrow again. Alarmed, you remount and continue on your way towards the village. And it's another encounter where I'm very curious as to what would have happened if I failed the luck test. Would I have had to fight Black Jack, or would Black Jack merely have assaulted me and then fallen lifeless to the ground? It is not long before you are moving slowly between the mist-shrouded houses of Crowford. God's fire snorts and throws back his head in an effort to avoid the enveloping fog, but you gently urge him forward. Through the haze, you are just able to make out people fleeing from you. The sound of slamming doors echoes hollowly in the mist as the villagers lock themselves in their homes. In front of you, a woman snatches up her child and runs into a nearby cottage. Realising that your premonition is coming true, you spur God's fire towards your parents' home. Once there, you dismount and rush in through the open door. You call out to your parents but no answer comes. A quick look around reveals there is no one to be found. Will you go to the tavern and look for them, or would you rather visit the priest in the hope that he can shed some light on your parents' whereabouts? Well, we were told that they might be in the tavern, but we were also told that the priest would be a useful person, so 
let's go and talk to the priest. If he's anything like a proper parish priest, he should have an intimate knowledge of the doings of his parishioners. As you approach the church, soul-rending screams come tearing out of the mist-carpeted graveyard. You knock at the church door and can hear the sound of a bar being removed from the inside. The door opens to reveal a scared-looking man dressed in priest's robes. Hurriedly, he beckons you to enter the church. Thank heavens you've arrived. Come, quick, come inside. He quickly bars the door and with a great effort recovers his composure. I'm Anson, the new priest. I have sad news for you. Your parents were found dead in their homes three days ago. At least at the time we thought they were your parents. Now, I'm not so sure. There was something very strange about their appearance. Their flesh was stretched tightly on their bones and their eyes shone with an unholy light. Because of the suspicions I had just this morning, I opened their grave, only to find they had been spirited away and their places taken by foul demons. Ever since I buried those creatures, an evil miasma has hung over this village, destroying the crops and killing the wildlife. Now every night at sunset, the screams begin. You have the power to put an end to this nightmare. You must help, I implore you. So what will you do? Will you open your parents' grave? Use sense demon if you can, or leave the village to search elsewhere for your parents? Let's use sense demon since we selected it from the list. A strong demonic presence emanates from the grave of your parents. It cannot possibly be your mother and father who are in there. Will you return to the church so that you can get a spade and open up the grave, or leave Crowford to seek your parents elsewhere? One thing I do like about this is that it's opening in a very ordinary location that would be familiar to many readers of fighting fantasy, the country village. That's a great setting to introduce a whole bunch of weirdness because it provides a familiar setting that can then be contrasted with the horrible things that are happening. We're going to go and dig up the grave. Anson unbars the church door, hands you a spade and wishes you luck. When you re-enter the graveyard, the screams have grown louder, and when you are mere feet from the grave, they rise to a shriek, and the soil covering the grave suddenly erupts. You are horrified to see two rotting skeletal figures scrambling out of the ground. Flesh dangles from the cadaverous and bony fingers which are reaching for your throat. Do you want to invoke Banish Undead? Uh, I probably do, but first there is a very nice picture of the demons emerging from the grave. They look truly repulsive with wings and rotting twisted faces and talons outstretched breaking the frame. Classic. Uh, are they undead or are they just demons? Oh well, we'll find out when I try and banish them. You recognise them. They are blight demons whose very bodies emanate death and decay. Fortunately, they feel your righteous power and recoil from you. The blight demons fall back into the grave where they dissolve into a puddle of green slime. 
as what is left of the demon's bubbles and hisses the mist clears and with it the oppressive atmosphere that has plagued Crowford. You are about to leave the graveyard when you notice an iron tube lying in the revolting sludge. Carefully you pick it up and wipe it clean. Then you notice a parchment rolled up inside it. The parchment is a map on which is marked a cave. Fortunately by the cave is written the words captives held here. The cave itself is situated in the hilly area east of the road to Weedenbridge. If you travel along this road at some time in the future, you will be given the option to look for the cave. You may do this by turning to paragraph 150. Hidden paragraph, early doors. Does that suggest that this is going to be a wash with things you need to find with numbers scribed upon them? For now, you have saved the village, but your parents still missing. You must look for them elsewhere. You have discovered that your parents are not in Crowford, so you decide to visit your friend, Charlena the Seer, who may be able to advise you. After a few hours spent trudging along the main road to the Northlands, you enter the Gladen Forest. The sound of birdsong lightens your spirits and you make good progress. An hour or so later the sun begins to set and night slowly falls. You are on the point of leaving the main road and following the winding track that leads to the Horn Hills and Charlena's cottage when you hear the sound of a wagon approaching from the north. Of course it may be merchants or traders, but you can never be sure. Will you ride forward to meet the wagon or will you leave the main road and head into the Horned Hills? I will meet the wagon Hopefully it'll be someone who can sell me some useful thing. Sword drawn, you urge God's fire forward and see an old wagon pulled by a shabby horse creak into view. Two terrified-looking peasants sit at the front and you can hear the groans of someone in pain coming from the back. The wagon stops and one of the peasants calls out to you. Let us pass. We have nothing. Demons have taken all our possessions. We beg you. Sheathing your sword, you ride slowly over to them. As you get closer, a look of relief passes over their faces. Our village was attacked by demons. The north's full of them. One of us is wounded. Can you help? If you have the heal talent, you can help. Otherwise, the peasants warn you to be careful, and then they head off along the road due south. Realising your parents must be somewhere to the north, you decide not to lose precious time visiting Charlena and spur God's fire onwards. That's interesting. Kind of did want to meet Charlena, but uh, hey-ho, maybe she would just give us exactly the same information that the evil is lurking to the north. Menacing clouds blot out the moon, but you are still able to follow the road as it winds northwards. Thunder rumbles ominously overhead, but you ignore the growing storm and press on until you come to a crossroads. Barely visible beneath their lanterns, a group of peasants are standing in a tight circle round a signpost. They carry pitchforks, scythes and other unfriendly-looking farm tools. As you draw near, a sudden flash of lightning enables you to see that four of them are lowering something into a freshly dug hole at the foot of the post. If you wish, you may stop and see what they are up to. Otherwise, you may ignore the strange scene and gallop swiftly along one of the three roads. You can either go to Weedon Bridge 
Colton on the Marsh or Astonbury. So there's a picture of the peasants doing their crossroad burial, which I guess means that they think there might be a vampire in that thar coffin. It's a nice picture, very evocative. The peasants look properly medieval, which uh, they don't always look medieval in fighting fantasy books. Sometimes they have a more early modern feel to them, but we do seem to be in a truly medieval portion of the world. But anyway, again, I am cursed by curiosity, so I'm going to pause and find out what they are up to. Hearing your horse's hoofbeats approaching, the men turn to face you, their weapons raised, but once they see you, they relax. Their leader, a stout, amiable man, steps forward to greet you. We have travelled from Oak Hill to Bury Calbert, a young scholar who has taken his own life. As you know, unless a suicide is laid to rest in a special manner beneath crossed roads, he may rise as a creature of the night. This we cannot allow. Will, will you help us? You can choose to stay and perform your priestly functions over this tragic ceremony. Politely decline and press on with your quest. Uh, of course I'll help. Of course I'll help. That thing at the back of your mind that... Uh, not helping might increase your evil score is uh, a really nice motivator to stick to the path of heroism. I like it. The downcast villagers stand round you as you chant the solemn burial rites, but you are only halfway through when you hear scratching sounds coming from under the coffin lid. The villagers begin to shuffle nervously and you rush through the remainder of the ceremony. Suddenly the coffin disintegrates in a shower of splinters as Calbert the Vampire claws his way out of the grave. So we can stand and fight, fall back and flee, or try and think of another way to defeat it. Well, we do have holy water and we do have a cross, so let's see if either of those are an option. Even as the vampire's claws are lunging through the air towards you, you reach into your pack and deftly pull out your cross. Calbert snarls in pain as the pure silver burns its image into his hands and forces him back down into the ravaged coffin. He curses and cringes like a beaten cur, wailing terrible threats of revenge. But you stand firm, holding him at bay while one of the peasants drives a wooden stake deep into his heart. Add one point to your luck for quick thinking. Luck now twelve again. Calbert writhes in vampiric torment as the flesh melts from his bones, leaving only a dry skeleton. Relieved, the peasants thank you for your help and effusively wish you well before they begin filling the grave and turning homeward. You too must continue on your quest. Will you go now to Weedonbridge, to Colton on the Marsh, or to Astonbury? I must say that the place names feel much more like English place names than a lot of the fantasy locales we've encountered in fighting fantasy. Um, again, it just creates this feeling of normality against which the hideous events can be profitably contrasted. Anyway, we're going to Weedonbridge because I think that's where the captives were being held. The road to Weedonbridge heads westwards for quite some time before eventually bending to the north. As you travel further northwards, 
the thunderstorm gives way to a torrent of heavy rain. Soon you are soaked through to the skin, thoroughly miserable and in need of shelter. Hills rise to your right, and if you have a parchment, you will know of a cave nearby which you may wish to look for. Otherwise, you will have to continue along the road in the hope of finding a refuge. We do have a parchment. Uh, it's interesting that the text lets you know kind of what it is that the hidden paragraph will point you towards. Not everything will do that. Sometimes they might just ask, do you have a parchment? And does it have a number written on it to try and preserve some of the mystery? I don't think either approach is necessarily the wrong one. Anyway, uh, let's go and investigate this cave. Though the narrow dirt track is hidden by thick undergrowth, you are able to find it by using the parchment found near the Blight Demons. You dismount and lead God's fire up the difficult hillside track. Your feet are constantly slipping in the deep mud, but eventually you come to a cave mouth. A strange red light glows from within. Leaving your horse, you creep forward. Do you have Dark Veil, which is a kind of limited invisibility? No, I don't. So onwards, you step quietly forwards, only to stand before a flying skull. Strangely sculpted from stone, the bizarre automaton sees you and darts towards you, the red glow you saw earlier coming from its eyes and other gaps in its facial structure. In the brief instant before it attacks you, you notice that there is nothing else to be seen in the cave, nor are there any exits leading from it. The whole thing has been a trap. You were meant to follow the parchment to your doom. You draw your sword just as two crimson beams blaze at you from out of the skull's eye sockets. So, there's a picture of the stone skull, which is great, looming out of the darkness, eyes blazing. Really nice. Uh, however, we must test our luck. Uh, luck was boosted back to 12, so automatically lucky. Luck now 11. Acting on your well-honed instinct, you dive for the floor. As you roll forward and then flip up to your feet, the beams shoot harmlessly overhead. Do you want to take flight and return to the road, or are you prepared to hold your ground against this dark device? Again, leaving a giant stone skull with laser eyes to oppress anyone who happens across it feels like it might be a bit evil, so I am going to stand my ground. You raise your sword and charge. However, the skull uses its power of levitation to avoid your sword strokes, while manoeuvring itself into a good position to blast you repeatedly with its eye beams. This is going to be no ordinary duel. Test your luck. Oh, again. I do seem to like a luck test. Three. I am lucky. Luck now. Ten. So if we were unlucky, it would have zapped us with the eye beams and we'd have had to deduct three points from our stamina, but we could have tried again. Uh, or we could have run away. But uh, yes, we are lucky. So with a loud crash, your keen blade cleaves the stone skull in two. Fragments fly in all directions as the magic energies trapped within it escape. For a few moments, you are bathed in a peculiar glow. When it disappears, you find yourself in possession of new knowledge. 
you gain one extra talent of your choice. Excellent. So let's look at the list. Having had a number of luck tests, I am going to take the meditation talent, uh, which can only be done in a place of absolute calm, but it does allow you to meditate and receive divine guidance, which will restore stamina or luck. And luck has been a bit of an issue, so that sounds pretty useful. Unfortunately, the same release of power causes the cave to quake so violently that it starts to collapse. You cannot shelter here, so you leave and join the road to Weedon Bridge once more. Further north, you come to a small roadside cross, a holy monument where travellers such as yourself may stop for a moment's divine contemplation. Here, you may dismount and offer prayers to your gods, or continue in your search for shelter from a pouring rain. I am enjoying just how much this book pushes you towards a certain way of playing it. I'm very much looking forward to completely ignoring the hints on a second playthrough and just trying to play my warrior priest as an absolute nightmare. So we'll stop and we can meditate if we wish, but I don't because my stamina is still... 20 and my luck is still 10. Now, uh, I suddenly realised that the um, the meditation talent doesn't indicate that you can only use it once. That's me, as a designer, assuming that they'd put in some kind of control on what could be a very powerful talent and assuming that they were going to put one particular kind of control onto it. So uh, a little lesson to myself there. Don't try and second-guess game designers read the rules, apply the rules, don't assume you know what the rules are because you've seen similar rules before. So I will meditate. Despite the distracting cold and the harsh stinging rain on your face, you feel that familiar yet weird feeling of warmth which tells you that you are in union with your gods. Without thinking about it, you raise your hand to an ornamental disc carved in the monument's base and turn it. There is a grinding of stone as a small panel slides open to reveal a secret compartment. You reach in and find an artefact bearing a sigil of your gods. You were destined to find this holy amulet. You put it in your pack, give thanks to the gods and continue on your journey. So we've got a holy amulet, but no stamina or luck. That's fine. I'll take what they offer. The rain continues to cascade from the sky, turning the road into a quagmire. Unable to ride any further, you dismount and lead God's fire by the bridle through the long night. Dawn is but a few hours away when you reach the outskirts of Weedenbridge. A winged creature flits across the road in front of you and dark shapes move about in the trees. A heavy, oppressive atmosphere oozes from the village assailing your nostrils with the stench of evil. Sensing this, God's fire bolts off into the woods. Knowing full well you will not be able to find him in the dark, you stand and survey the village. A light is shining from a large stone building in the village square. Next to you, an open door leads into a wooden house. Do you want to approach the stone building or the wooden house? Well... Let's try the wooden house because it is closest and I'm quite lazy. A rustling noise inside the house warns you that something 
is lurking within. Do you wish to use Sense Demon? I do indeed. An overpowering demonic presence lurks within the building. Rather than face it, you rush towards the illuminated stone building. You are racing through the driving rain towards the lit building when you glance up and see the winged creature sweeping down towards you. From their leathery, gargoyle-like forms, they can only be moon demons, fierce beasts that stalk the night in large bands. As you knock desperately on the stout wooden door, one of them lands on your back, and the others splash down into the mud around you. You swing your sword but cannot reach the creature clinging to your back. You pound on the door and yell to be let in. The door suddenly swings open and you fall forward. Before hitting the floor, you see a dozen or more enraged villagers rushing towards you with knives and sides upraised. Test your luck. Good job I rolled a ridiculously good luck or I would be in significant trouble. Six. Luck now nine. The villagers swiftly slay the demon and drag its scaly carcass from your back. Two villagers hastily bar the door and a small, weaselly-looking man helps you to your feet. For the moment you are safe, but you cannot tell how long the door will withstand a concerted demon attack. The man introduces himself as Romond, the headman of the village. For three nights we have been attacked by these foul moon demons and they have slain many of us. Some families managed to flee, but we do not know whether they have reached safety or not. At first we hoped to drive the demons off, but uh, more kept arriving all the time. Now we have no choice other than to head south when the morning comes. Until then we will have to survive what remains of the night. You know from your research that normally moon demons cannot enter the real world. A great rift between the dimensions must have occurred to let so many through in this place. You remember that moon demons cannot stand daylight. In the morning they will return to their own plane. Will you stay and help the villagers or continue the search for your parents by leaving via the back door? So we will help on this occasion. Again, trying to stave off that evil. The villagers look to you for leadership. Quickly, you position them to defend the barred doors and windows of the building. Then, you settle down to wait for the dawn to bring an end to this nightmare. After a short while, the sound of scratching can be heard from overhead. Fearing that the demons will break in through the roof, you ask Ramond whether there is a way up. He points to a dark corner, where a ladder leads up to a trapdoor in the ceiling. You climb the ladder and push open the flimsy trapdoor. To your horror, you can see that the ferocious moon demons have already clawed away some roofing slates. They will soon be able to smash their way through the trap door. You must seal it with a magical barrier. Do you have the holy amulet? If you do, you may place it here. I do indeed. Just as you manage to seal the trap door, a large moon demon spreads its leathery wings and dives towards you. You must fight. Wow, I have been recording for ages, and this is the first battle we've had. That is testament to a gamebook design that is not relying on fights, or at least not thus far. So the Moon Demon has a skill of 7 and a stamina of 6. I'm going to roll some dice.
I have defeated the Moon Demon. It did no damage to me whatsoever. Confident that the trapdoor is now secure, you climb back down the ladder. The villagers are tense but alert. All is quiet except for the sound of pouring rain. A crash of thunder echoes round the hall, and as it dies away, all the doors and windows suddenly burst in. Endless hordes of frenzied demons pour through the openings, their dripping fangs eager for blood. Though the demons fight for all they are worth, they are soon forced to fall back in disarray. Will you use the Holy Circle talent, or meditation, or would you rather fight the moon demons? There is a picture of the moon demons hacking through the walls in a torrent, opposed by a horde of ragtag villagers with very bad haircuts. I feel like Martin McKenna's style is really well suited to this kind of image because he often has a lot of white space on his human faces and this acts as a really nice contrast with the much darker faces of the demons. Uh, yeah, it's a really good bit of work. I like it a lot. So I'm going to try the old holy circle talent to deal with these moon demons. Quickly, you call the villagers over so they can all cram into your holy circle. The moon demons attempt to storm the mystical barrier, but the first ones to reach it are engulfed in bright blue flame. Seeing this, the other demons hastily back off and wait for your power to wane. This is going really well. Really, really well. One moment you are surrounded by a multitude of howling, bloodthirsty demons, and the next, they are gone. Bright sunlight shines into the hall as the dawn breaks and the rain stops. Cheers fill the air as the villagers celebrate the end of the longest night they have ever known. For this good fortune, you may restore one luck point. Luck now ten. The villagers gather up their belongings and prepare to head south. Ramond asks you to accompany them, but you refuse. You must travel north in search of your parents. Walking north from Weddenbridge, you observe signs of the Moon Demon's army's passage. Carnage, decay, and destruction on a massive scale. There has to be something behind them, driving them on, and that something must be destroyed. After a couple of hours, you feel the previous night's action beginning to take its toll, and you realise you haven't slept since before you arrived in Crowford. You stop and huddle beneath a cluster of charred fir trees. Unsurprisingly, you are also very hungry. Unless you eat at least one meal's worth of provisions now, you will have to lose two points from your stamina. So, tuck into some garlic bread and avoid losing stamina. It is late in the afternoon when you reawaken. Feeling much better for your slumber, you set out on the northerly road once more. Two miles on, you hear a sound like the flapping of giant wings. It comes from somewhere off the road, obscured by a ridge to your right. Will you stand and wait with your sword drawn, or get off the road and hide in the undergrowth? I will get off the road and I will hide in the undergrowth. You make a sprint for cover on the side of the road opposite the muddy ridge and leap into a ditch obscured by brambles. Test your luck. Three, I am lucky. Luck now nine. 
Hidden by the tangled foliage, you see a cloudy, elemental-like form in the shape of a huge winged beast appear over the rise. It stops and sniffs the air, then it departs, flying eastwards at a terrific speed. You are convinced that it must have been the product of a powerful magic spell. When it is out of sight once more, you are on the point of getting up, when you discover a leather package lying on the ground nearby. The watertight wrappings contain enough provisions for one meal, but you may keep them. Provisions now five again. Then you set off, following the north road once more. You are only part of the way to Axmore when the night falls and you take shelter in a small ruined tower. Senses alert, you are starting to build a fire when you feel an unnatural coldness. Obeying your instincts, you look out over the surrounding woods and see a glowing shape drift slowly towards you. It is a ghost. If you have Banish Undead, you may use it, or you may flee, or wait crouched on the stone floor to see what the ghost will do. There is a picture of the ruined tower with your fire in the middle and a ghost coming out of the darkness. It's all so great. I just really like Martin McKenna's work. I feel like he's just really good at using light and shade. His kind of slightly scratchy, busy style is just a really good natural fit for fighting fantasy. Anyway, I'm going to wait and see what the ghost will do. You are amazed when you realise the ghost is your friend, Charlena the Seer of the Horned Hills. She speaks in a mournful yet matter-of-fact manner that fills you with dread. I have been murdered, a spirit demon. I have struggled to come here. We are puppets in the master plan. I offer you a link in the chain, the pool of Dunningham. Then she is blown away by the wind. What did she mean? Your mind strives for a solution. Do you feel a tear running down your cheek? Damn Muir, for all the sorrow he has beset you with. You go to sleep. Soon the next day you reach Axmoor. What you see at Axmoor defies belief. The River Merton is clogged with all manner of odious pollutants oozing out of the village sewers. The surrounding woodland has been blasted beyond recognition, leaving a barren, smoking landscape. Most of the village's buildings are ruined. You start to cross a high stone bridge spanning the mighty Merton when suddenly a number of enormous segmented tentacles covered in glistening slime rise from the riverbed. They wrap themselves around the stonework and pull. You stumble as the bridge starts to collapse. Test your luck. I roll an eight. I am lucky. My luck now reduced to eight. I've never known... Um, the fighting fantasy book quite so enamoured of the luck mechanic. You are flung forward, landing on the far side of the bridge. Instinctively, you curl into a ball and roll forward, protecting yourself from the impact of the fall. Behind you, the tentacles drag the mighty bridge down into the river. Without pause, you turn and run into the village where you hope to confront the source of this evil. Most of the buildings in the centre of the village have been levelled, leaving a wide, circular clearing in the middle of the space. Here stands the cause of Axmoor's devastation, a huge and repulsive edifice constructed out of organic matter, 
a mixture of bone and oozing sinew, which, on close inspection, resembles slime-covered worm-like joints and fibrous links. Numerous protruding vents and chimneys spew out thick, heavy gases, which fill the air, blotting out the sunlight and slowly killing all life. Quivering roots spread from the factory, twisting and writhing before sinking into the dying earth. It is these roots that attacked you on your arrival. You must find a way to bring this place down or die in the attempt. Bears all the hallmarks of Mier. You can take one of two possible entrances, a massive iron doorway or a circular hole in the ground from which thin vapours rise. There is a picture of the hideous alien factory. It's also great. The description, which is fantastic, is very H.R. Geiger, and the illustration shows more nods in that direction. Yeah, really good. So, I think that is a reasonable point at which to pause this recording. I'm very intrigued to find out how this one turns out. I'm enjoying this one just a lot. Um, yes, for now, I'm going to go away, finish playing on my own time, then come back to you with some closing remarks. Tatty bye! You may have noticed a slight difference in the timbre of my voice on this recording. I'm experimenting with some changes, mostly for boring production reasons. Hopefully it's not too jarring, but do feel free to give me feedback at hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com if you have strong feelings about how I sound on this episode. I have to say I'm very happy with Dead of Night. If it hadn't been following soon after the genuinely excellent Vault of the Vampire, I'd be even more enthused by it than I am now. It's basically great. For starters, it's really nicely written in a clear and evocative fashion that really brings the world to life. It's a hard thing, writing gamebook prose, and this is some of the best I've had the pleasure of encountering, striking that elusive balance between brevity and vividly describing the situations. And in terms of the writing, I particularly want to call out the background section. I think this is one of the bits of game books that most people get wrong, and I am no exception. It's very easy to get sucked into the trap of providing too much context and backstory, so that the introduction winds up being a dense and indigestible lump of exposition. Dead of Night keeps it relatively brief, and more importantly, takes the opportunity to give you some useful information alongside the traditional list of made-up places and made-up people. One thing I really like is that a helpful ghost that appears in the later sections of the book is foreshadowed in the introduction by your mentor Branner meeting a similarly helpful ghost. It also gives you two people to try and find in the early stages of the story, which is very helpful for giving you a sense of focus and direction when you're first embarking on the adventure. Setting the scene and providing a couple of useful hints in a manageable word count is more or less the platonic ideal for an introduction, I feel. When I finish the current gamebook I'm working on, I'm actually going to go back and write the intro again once the whole book is finished and really try and focus on making sure that it's doing something more interesting than simply setting the scene. Intros in game books are 
often bad. And looking back, this is an area where I could definitely have improved myself. There's a temptation to put everything that you can think of into it. But actually, it's a place where less is more because it's the least interactive part of the book. And most readers, if they're anything like me, will be impatient to get started once they've read the rules. And having to read eight pages of densely written backstory is less compelling than dropping the player into the action quickly and then filling in backstory as you go. The quality of the writing continues into the book proper and has a tremendous sense of escalation. You've more or less got a three-act structure with each broad section being weirder and more demon-haunted than the last. I probably enjoyed the early portions best. There was something pleasing to me about being able to travel through different villages and see how the spreading evil had tainted them. The final sections get a lot more surreal, which is appropriate as reality itself gets shaped to the demon lord's will, but at this point it somehow feels quite standard for a fighting fantasy book. Funny how the surreal and bizarre can end up feeling familiar and comfortable. One of the authors did quite a lot of work on Games Workshop's Warhammer fantasy roleplay, and that shows especially clearly in these early portions. It's not a world of castles and knights, it's a world of villages and grubby peasants, and that plays to my own preference for more grounded stories about ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. In general, the writing does a great job of creating a world that is recognisably a traditional fantasy world, but with a strong horror tinge. And this is one of my favourite things. One of the reasons I love Robert E. Howard so much is that his worlds are suffused with horror as well as high adventure. Now, your mileage may vary, obviously, but personally, I love this sort of thing. I'm very keen on the way the antagonist is depicted as well. Muir is a classic demon, one who deals in both overt force and also subterfuge. He feels like he could have emerged from an occult grimoire or a medieval codex on demonology with his ability to change forms and work through proxies. That his key goal in the adventure is to defeat the protagonist is also cool. It makes the stakes intensely personal on both sides. You, the adventurer, want to rescue your parents, while Muir wants nothing more than to utterly destroy you. This isn't about saving the world. This is personal. The middle section features some extremely memorable set pieces. We broke off recording just before entering a Geiger-themed nightmare factory, and that segment really delivers on the promise of the description and the artwork. Arguably, it's so strong that it would make a better final location than the one we actually get, which is, broadly, a strange castle. There's also a wonderful village oppressed by the machinations of a necromancer, complete with ruined windmill straight out of the universal version of Frankenstein. The book generally manages that difficult thing whereby there's lots of different areas that feel distinct, but all sharing a common aesthetic. It would be easy for each village to blend together, but they all feel different enough to be individually memorable. None of them is large, they all feature a handful of encounters, but there's enough there that I felt like I'd properly visited somewhere. The author's background in tabletop scenario design clearly shows through. They've pulled the most interesting elements from each location, 
and spun them out into something tightly written and nicely evocative. There's also relatively few straight left-right choices. They make sure to include at least something to differentiate even the simplest of options. It all adds to the immersive quality and to the atmosphere. The strong aesthetic is definitely helped by Martin McKenna's art as well. He's a great fit for the material, just as he was with Volta the Vampire. He's a sadly missed talent. Related to the general quality of the writing is the way it delivers on the promised fantasy of being a warrior priest. You are starting with a selection of suitably cleric-themed powers, and these are very much the focus of the design. There's a few items to find, including a couple which are very handy, but the overall focus is squarely on the skills that you have picked. All of the skills are useful in different situations, and whatever you pick, there will be times when you feel very glad about the choices you've made, and other times when you really wish that you'd chosen something else. There's no one talent that is absolutely required, which makes me very happy indeed. If there's a talent that was necessary to win, that would make the process of choosing your talents kind of pointless. As it is, you can experiment with different talents on different playthroughs, which adds a nice element of variation to proceedings. All of the talents feel appropriate to your character as well, which is lovely to see. The focus on talents makes this a generally lower combat book than many in the series, and that too is nice. You'll get into fights at various points, no doubt, but between the variety of encounters and the ability to use talents to defeat monsters, you don't get sucked into an endless parade of dice rolling, and that's very refreshing. I enjoy combats, I think combats are brilliant, but they too tend to get old fast if they're relied on too much. While I'm praising mechanical design choices, I'm also quite impressed with the decision to focus strongly on luck tests, to the complete exclusion of skill tests or stamina tests. It does mean that you are well advised to roll up a character that has a decent luck score, but we've gone over the balance problems with the character generation system too many times by this point, so I won't belabor it here. If the book was bad, I'd possibly be calling out the overuse of luck tests and complaining that it lacked variety, but in this instance, the way they've been used is really cool. Firstly, luck is unusual in that it gets better as a mechanic the more you use it, since your luck score dropping is an inherent part of the system. You get more and more nervous about luck tests the more of them you have. So long as there's some good options for regaining luck, having a lot of luck tests is actually really cool. It also puts luck on the same level as skill and stamina, both of which get used a whole bunch in every fighting fantasy game book. This book makes luck feel the equal of the other stats, and that's brilliant. It also helps that the penalties for failing luck tests are generally fairly well balanced. This isn't a book filled with reductive examples of the tired luck test or die approach, with a failed luck test rarely leading to an instant end to your adventure, the slow expenditure of luck feels pleasantly stressful rather than oppressive and frustrating. The other big mechanical innovation is the evil stat, and the way evil is used is interesting, but also flawed. It pushes you into playing your character in a certain way, which certainly helps 
sell the fantasy of being a warrior priest, but it also acts to limit meaningful choice, since you are strongly disincentivized to explore other, less heroic options. Morality systems are tricky in game books because they are notoriously hard to balance. For a morality system to be meaningful in gameplay terms, there needs to be a cost associated with making the right decision. Because Dead of Night is quite easy, not overwhelmingly easy, but quite easy, the gameplay cost associated with doing the right thing is low, which means you don't generally agonise about doing the right thing, you just do it. I think the issue is that for evil to be a meaningful presence in a game mechanically, it needs to represent some kind of shortcut, ideally one that will come back to bite you later if you take it. There's an element of that here. Towards the end of the book, having a high evil score will punish you quite badly, but you don't get quite enough sense that evil offers anything worthwhile in the short term. And in our own world, the most common reasons that people do bad things are for personal gain or out of fear, and there's often a mixture of the two at work. This is something that very few games model well because the stakes in a game are so low. There's nothing actually at stake. Within the fiction, the fate of the world might hang in the balance, but really, the worst case scenario is that you have to start again. Something that the real world so far fails to offer unless you're a proponent of reincarnation. It's something that lots of games get wrong. I've played video games where there were morality systems and attempted to get the evil ending, and they often fall into the same trap. The game usually tracks your morality very crudely, often through dialogue choices. It's got more sophisticated in recent years, but ultimately your behaviour expressed through your interaction with NPCs just makes a number go up or down, and this can be very easy to break. And in the real world, we would say that someone who gave a lot of money to charity but committed a couple of murders for no real reason was, on the balance of it, a bad person. In a game, however, you can sometimes come out looking moral if you balance a life of service with the odd, genuinely heinous crime. And that's the problem with systematising morality. Numbers going up or down can't capture the difference between a poor moral choice made for reasons that we might understand, such as not speaking up against an evil regime because you're afraid of the security services, and those we might struggle to understand, choosing to work directly for an evil regime and further their agenda when other options are available. Context is extremely important in moral questions, and that's something that abstract systems struggle to capture. Tabletop role-playing games can handle this sort of thing better since there's the ability to negotiate with the person running the game and players are often more invested in portraying their characters consistently. That's a bigger element of the fun than in game books or video games. And also, if the players choose to do something genuinely awful, the games master is able to have the whole world change in order to respond to this unexpected turn of events. And that's not something that's available in the relatively static game worlds of video games and game books. I'm terrible, 
for deliberately trying to break video game morality systems. In general, they're so badly implemented that they might as well not be there, but that's a rant for another day. In the case of Dead of Night, I think it's implemented about as well as you could expect a morality system to be implemented in a game book. It nudges the player into being moral, which is quite nice, and it does provide at least some consequences for evil actions. I think in general, a better way to implement morality in game books is the use of keywords. While gaining a point of evil in Dead of Night tells you nothing about how that point of evil was acquired, a keyword can specifically capture context and save it for later. It allows you to differentiate between stealing a loaf of bread or burning down an orphanage, and it means that stealing ten loaves of bread doesn't end up being morally equivalent to burning down one orphanage. It also allows you to have different outcomes for different moral acts. It doesn't even use much space. Keywords are a great and very clean mechanic for this kind of thing. I don't actively dislike the evil system in Dead of Night, but it does show the difficulty attendant on trying to turn complex human behaviour into abstract mechanics. And there's a general learning point there, which is the best things to systematise are the ones where the outcome can be reduced to some sort of binary. So in a combat, you either live or you die. If you're jumping over a bridge, you either make it or you don't. These things abstract relatively well to mechanics, whereas something fuzzy like were you justified in attacking that person that one time just doesn't have the same either-or quality to it. I'm going to finish off by drawing attention to two different elements of the book, one good and one bad. The bad is a familiar one to regular listeners. There is a maze. It's really not good. It's a series of different coloured rooms, and as far as I can tell, there's nothing in the way of clues in the book to assist with solving it. I could be mistaken on that. It's just a case of blundering round until you find the exit, or, if you're some kind of deviant, meticulously mapping your progress. It's comfortably the worst bit of the book, and if I was a cynical man, I'd be tempted to suggest that they'd more or less finished and realised they were a few paragraphs short of the Magic 400 and thought, screw it, we'll just put in a maze to hit the section count. I think some fighting fantasy books are actively hurt by trying to hit 400 paragraphs, and this is one where the material is strong enough that I'd have been perfectly delighted if it had come in at a lean 350. Sometimes more isn't a good thing. I know that before the series was cancelled they were planning to produce some books in the 300 paragraph range and it would have been interesting to see what this did to the overall quality of the series. However, the good news is once you've beaten the maze and a few other obstacles the final climactic encounter with Muir is one of the best I've come across in the whole series. Only the fight with Balthus Dyer at the end of Citadel Chaos comes close to this quality. It's organised so that you can try to fight Muir directly, if you've got a very high starting skill and the obligatory magical sword, that might be an option, or more likely you can try and defeat the demon by destroying his focus which is hidden in an object. Choose an object and hope that Muir doesn't kill you before you find the right one. It's great, 
a fantastically tense encounter where you get to make choices rather than just roll some dice or check whether you have the magic amulet of winning. There's a great illustration to go with it and the whole thing feels appropriately epic despite the very personal stakes. And as soon as I'd finished it, my first thought was, I'm definitely nicking that for my own work, and there is no higher praise I can give. On that very pleasant high point, that is all for this episode. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another bonus episode, and one I am very excited for. In fact, the next four bonus episodes are all things I am delighted to have the chance to cover, so... There's plenty to look forward to in the next several months. Thank you very much for listening, take care, and I'll see you soon.